Welcome to Hit It, the Water Skier Magazine podcast, powered by USA Water Ski and Wake Sports, where we go on the water with some of the top athletes from three events, show skiing, barefooting, and everything in between. This episode is brought to you by Visit Central Florida, the water ski capital of the world. I'm your host, Tyler Boyd. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hit It podcast. I had the opportunity to interview the man that needs no introduction at all, the legendary Sammy Duvall. That's right. Sammy joined us in the Hit It virtual podcast studio, and we pick up in 1981 where Sammy wins his first world overall title as a 19-year-old. From that point forward, he goes back to back to back and wins four consecutive world overall championships that ends in an epic fashion at Thorpe Park with a battle that unfolds not only for the jump event, but for the world overall title. Sammy unpacks that story, which is absolutely fascinating and incredible. Also, we look at Sammy's jump career, where he broke the world record six times. In 1993, he went 220 feet on 73-inch skis. There's a lot going on in this episode. It went longer than most of our episodes, which was a great thing, so we've broken this up into two parts. This is going to be part one, and we'll release part two in the upcoming weeks. We talk about the Pro Tour, we talk about the World Championships, we talk about the Masters, and we also talk about his training days and and competing against people like Mike Hazelwood, Mike Shaylander, Carl Roberge, Lucky Lowe. There's a lot of legends named in this episode. You're not going to want to miss this. This is part one of my interview with Sammy Duvall. All right. Well, welcome back to the Hit It podcast back in the virtual studio. And we have the one and only Sammy Duvall here with us this afternoon. Sammy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me and reaching out and, uh, and invite me today. Well, this is like a childhood dream to have the uh, time and, and the ability to sit down and interview you. I've been following your career for so long. I feel like I know you. And we uh, spoke on the, the phone briefly before coming onto this podcast. I know there's going to be a ton of things to cover. But just last year in 2021, the World Tournament came back to Jack Travers. And I know that Jack and Lalani played a big role at uh, a part of your career along your journey. What was it like to go down to the world tournament at Jack's? First of all, it was great to see a world championship. It's such a, you know, one of the best sites in the world, right? So as an athlete, it's always exciting to see the best conditions so people can really perform. And obviously they did over, you know, throughout the week, but it brought back a lot of memories. You know, I, I actually uh, started training with Jack when I was in the boys division and I was friends with uh a guy named Wayne Reese who held the national record in, in boys before me. And um, so that's how I met Jack and Leilani. Um, I went to high school in uh, Leesburg High School for a couple of years while I was training. And I spent, uh, I can't tell you how many mornings with Jack driving across Lake Harris to pick him up on the dock where we go train before I went to school. So it was kind of a floodgate of memories just opened up, you know, and uh, a lot of really good, good memories. Well, one thing about Sammy Duvall is we know Sammy the jump skier. And when I went back through your resume, 
I was blown away by the four consecutive world overall titles. And I just think that is a mark that is going to be very hard to beat. I mean, that is incredible. I mean, what does the world tournament mean to you? And then we'll start from the 81 worlds and just work our way through the four consecutive wins. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. It, you know, it seems so long ago and the landscape and skiing is so different today or even a decade ago as it was back in the uh, in the 80s. And so we had pro tournaments that we were going to. The world championships was kind of the pinnacle, right? I mean, the masters, the worlds, there were some pretty elite pro events. But there was something about the worlds that, you know, I grew up, my sister was on the U.S. team for several years, and I was able to go in 76 when the worlds were in England as an observer. And so um, I was riding the boat at practice with Bob and Chris and Camille and Dina. And, and so it really kind of got my juices flowing. So we wanted to do well. And, and at the same time, I had a lot of incentives in my endorsement contracts for performing well there. And so... You know, it was on my calendar for a long time, uh, heading into the 81 Worlds for sure. So 81 Worlds, I think you're 19 years old at the time. Obviously, the seed was planted many years before that. So you're training, you you know what the end goal is. But do you come into the 81 Worlds as a 19-year-old thinking you're going to win? Yes, I did. You know, I mean, uh, a lot of training. We talked about Jack Travers, you know, and when I was there, there was just a myriad of great skiers from around the world, which is how I ended up. I, I graduated high school early, was in college and in the middle of winter. And, and I'm like, wait, the best skiers in the world are in Groveland at Liz Allen Ski School and Jack Travers, which at the time were, you know, eight, 10 miles apart. And I'm sitting here in the rain freezing in South Carolina. And uh, by the time my dad came home from work, I had my car packed up and I was ready to go to Florida. And so that was really the impetus, I think, for me, where it's like, okay, you know, uh, you have to go all out if you're going to make it. Because I was skiing with Mike Hazelwood, Moshi Ganzi, Eddie DeTilder. I mean, more people that I can even mention that were awesome athletes. And so I knew what the, you know, where the bar was set, if you will. So 81 Worlds, you get there. The mind frame is to win. You end up on the top of the podium. At that point in your ski career, slalom, trick, and jump, are they all three equal or is one stronger than the other? No, you know, I would say my jumping has always been my best event. And, you know, probably because my um, size of my frame and weight, that's, and, and I started skiing when I was four and I was jumping by the time I was five, you know, and I won my first national title in jumping when I was 12 and overall. So, you know, that's kind of been the, the, the foundation of the whole overall competition tricks through the years. I really, you know, in juniors, I had national records, you know, I was competing against Corey Picos, who was just this phenom, you know, and so it was tough. Then I really put a lot of time in throughout the winters that got my trick skiing up there where, you know, I won a few silvers uh, at the worlds and tricks and, you know, um, at the masters, you know, so I was very competitive. Slalom was always a challenge for me really until I quit three event skiing. And when I stopped three event skiing for a variety of reasons, you know, that extra time I poured into my uh, other two events and they got, you know, pretty razor focused for me. Let's pull on that thread about what it takes to be a world champion, because a lot of our listeners are competing at the regional level, obviously uh, with the goal to go to the nationals, that becoming a world champion, even making it on the world team, 
is just a completely different world of dedication. Can you talk to us a little bit about your mind frame as you transition from juniors where you were extremely successful, but you're skiing around all these guys and going, I still got to get a lot better to get to where I'm going. No, that's a, that is a, a really, really good question, you know, um, for your whole membership, right? Because in a, in a perfect world, I always believed that you would be a, and, and this was not when I was young, but as I aged through the sport, I was, okay, you want to be a, a local champion. You want to be a regional champion. You strive to be a national champion. That's a lot of commitment. Then you try to be a world champion. And back then there were no junior worlds. There was no junior masters. So basically when it was time to move up, you moved up depending on your ability. And, you know, you went straight from five foot jumping straight to six foot. You know, there was, there was no five and a half in between. So, you know, it was kind of a sink, sink or swim uh, mentality that you, you had to have. But, you know, it, look, it's the same. If in, you know, my son played competitive tennis in college. I play a lot of golf. You know, when you're in individual sports, you have to have a selfishness like none other. And you have to put your family and all these other things in a box and just kind of store it away. And, you know, later in life, after Austin, our son, that's our first, was born, I, w- I had two overall tournaments a year. That was it, the Masters and one other. And I was spending all this time, all winter, training trick skiing for two events. And I'm like, you know, I've taken and used and used and used for me personally in my career the whole time. My parents' assistants, just like so many other skiers, your parents help you out, they get you going, then they can't get to a point where they can't coach you anymore. And then you got to go to another level and you got to get a better coach. Um, So there's a team of people throughout your career to get there. But when you get to the world championships and then to be a, a pro skier in a pro event, you have to have all the pieces and parts together you have to be willing to sacrifice like none other. You know, I think for me, I was willing to grind it out however much it took and sacrifice. And I had a amazing, you know, family around me and my wife and then my kids. And so in that sense, in that regard, I had an unbelievable support system, including Jack and Leilani and, you know, other skiers that it was just fun. I mean, it was a job, but it was fun. I loved what I was doing. Yeah, you know, that's a profound insight there, Sammy, because I think a lot of people from the outside look in, and especially people like yourself that, you know, the greatest of all time in a sport, you're looking at it and they're like, man, do they have a life? And and the fact is, this is life, right? Like uh, you're training at the lake, being at the lake is what you do and what what it took to win four consecutive worlds. Yeah, and you know, there was a there was a period where I was really slotted in in my weekly routine because you know, we got home Sunday night, very late, last flights in from Atlanta, or Monday morning, depending if you're coming from the West Coast. And by Thursday at 12, you were on a plane going wherever, unless you were going to do pre-press. And then you were leaving for Tuesday to be in pre-press during the week before one of the pro tour events when they had the tour. So, you know, Monday was like my day to recover and regroup. And I teed off golf 7 a.m. every Monday and just cleared my head and no matter good, bad, or indifferent, pushed that behind me and just kept going forward. And so I was really never one to, to look back and revel in the moment. And I would say that's my, in retrospect, I've said this for a long time to Susan, my wife, is, you know, I never, I wish now that I'd stopped and smelled the roses along the way to really enjoy a victory that was hard fought or that you weren't, didn't have your best and somehow you scrapped it out. And 
you know, I enjoyed those, but it was for a moment in time. And then I was on to the next event. And so when it's all said and done, you're just left with those memories that you go back to and you're like, God, I just wish I had you know, done it a little different. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, 83 worlds. So you've got one under your belt in 81. You've got to bounce back. It's been said before getting to the top is one thing. Staying at the top is another. What do you think in 83 worlds? Uh, you know, it was different, right? So we go to um, Sweden, which I'd never been to. And, and it was an amazing, probably the most one of the most favorite places I've ever been. Tough conditions. We were jumping into the morning sunlight and the ramp surface was white uh, with blue stripes. So there you go on that wow. one. And that time in the world's, you only had two jumps in the first round. And then you know, it was combined of the two events together. So a lot of pressure. And uh, I tricked exceptionally well. And I believe I got um, silver in tricks. I won jumping and I won the overall. You know, that really, 81, I was kind of finding my footing. 83 kind of solidified where I was going. You know, I turned pro when I was 16. So that would have been 79. And that first year on the pro tour, I won seven out of the nine men's jumping events when I was 16. So there was, you know, I had this really took off well. And then I started fiddling with bigger skis way back then, wider tips, different. Um, and as I went into, you know, the end of when I was just turning um, late 17, 18, I was struggling. And so I kind of found my way out of that, grew through that. And that got me into, you know, 81. And then after 83, I felt like, okay, this is, you know, I belong. This is where, you know, kind of my destiny. And I was only looking uh, forward to, uh, you know, more great uh, competition. Well, and I'm thinking back in the 80s and even in the 90s, maybe the formula for overall, because I, I do believe the, the NOPS calculation is different, but you kind of set a standard there with the trick and jump combo. You know, uh, I, I think probably more recently, we've seen the slalom scores come way up for some of the overall skiers. But uh, I, I would assume as long as you could just maintain in slalom, you could knock it out of the park and trick and jump and be okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things looking back, just like the evolution of any sport, right? The rules in our sport kept changing. Like every year it was like, or every two, how are you going to make the team? Like, what is the formula this year? And there were a lot of smart people trying to figure it out that were judges that had been at the last worlds or some you know global competitions. And so it, it kept changing, you know, and then you had specialists with, you know, like Corey Picos was just amazing points winner year after year. So he was kind of like a stalwart. So you had a few specialists that were already locked in. And so then you really had to have three events to take that spot, or you had to have two really strong events. And so it was, it was kind of always changing, but you're exactly right about how the whole knob system, you know, was uh, hard to figure out. So in 85, I would think, and I don't know, I haven't went back and read the press headlines, but it's probably in your head. Can Sammy do this three times in a row? Can he get the hat trick? Tell us about 85. Yeah, you know, 85 is kind of was a really big turning point for me in, in any global events. You know, we used to have a lot of professional events um, in Europe, especially in London. Peter Stuyvesant was a major sponsor, so there were jump events. There were events at Thorpe Park, sponsored by KP. So I was trying to hone my, like, you know, we would go to Europe and all of a sudden we'd be skiing against Russian athletes that we'd never seen before. You know, I mean, it was, it was definitely a different time, but in France, you know, my, one of my biggest rivals, Patrice Martin uh, was a national hero. 
And Patrice and I did not get along for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, we were there over a week early and we were out training outside Toulouse and uh, we had a great time. I mean, the team had a great time, you know, Tony Baggiano, you know, I mean, it was just like, you can imagine that the guys, uh, you know, Bob Hicks that went with us, we just, it was awesome. And then we went into the city and uh, we had practice and then they had a big press tent. And so in the press tent, I'm sitting with Lucky Lowe. And as you guys know, Lucky, you know, that's completely unfiltered. I mean, he's going to raw exactly what he feels you will know. And we're, we're doing this and they start, well, Patrice said he's going to do this. And Patrice said he's going to do that. And Patrice, you know, blah, blah, blah. It just keeps going. And so I'm like, I'm not really sure what you want me, how you want me to answer. And so perfectly on cue, the, the flaps open and in comes Patrice and he starts yelling and all this stuff and it's just it's just getting ugly and and lucky looks at me and goes what are you gonna do and i go i don't need to hear any of this all i can tell you on sunday afternoon cara betters and i will have kicked your ass and that's it that's it i don't want to talk about it can we just go on and lucky goes that's pretty good that was really good <laughs> so i still have a picture in my office of sunday afternoon in the press conference with Susan, Jim Grew, who was uh, um, translating for us, and Lucky. And we all have these big grins on our face, right? It, so so it, it was so bad that Susan and I, we didn't leave the hotel room the whole time we wow. were there. It was, I was on the front of the newspaper and the nasty American. And, you know, there was nothing I was going to be able to do that was right because he was, he was a national hero, rightfully so, in his own right. So... The only time we went to dinner or anything was we only went in the team with the team the whole time we were in France. So Man, I pretty, can't, I, Sammy, I can't even imagine that scenario playing out in today's ski world. And so tell us about your mindset because, and a lot of the, this conversation, we're going to see you as the tip of the spear for the first time. I mean, who's a water skier that ends up on the front cover of a newspaper getting bashed in another country? And how do yeah. you put that to side to win? Yeah. It, it was uh, great. Well, you know, I think what added to the the kind of the whole weekend was uh, NBC Sports sent a, a team in, including Paul Page, who used to um, cover NASCAR uh, racing. And um, so NBC was filming everything. And Camille and I agreed to do the play-by-play commentating. So we were doing spots between, you know, events between practice. I mean, we were all over. And, you know, we just felt it was a great opportunity for the sport. Um, to showcase it in the U.S., um, and we were honored that they uh, asked us to do it. And, you know, my like, a lot of the people, you know, the team, the coaches, like, are you sure you want to do this? And I'm like, well, it's done. I mean, we've already signed the agreement. So it was the whole time was just a whirlwind of activity. But, you know, I, I think, like as I said, as I went into 85, I, I felt like I belonged. I didn't have my best stuff, and it all came down to jumping. And uh, I was able to get it done. So uh, it was just, uh, you know, when we left and we flew out, it was, we were all on cloud nine. It was good. That's amazing. Well, I want to just talk about that real quick about doing spots in between skiing and announcing and pulling that off. I mean, in modern day contracts, I wouldn't say that. I think Tom Brady just the other day said after he's done with football, he signed with Fox and he's going to be an announcer. Like there's no way that those types of athletes could could even manage to pull that off. So your mentality to go do that saying, and I, I assume your mentality had been the same the whole way, you know, you're going to go in 
And what you're going to do is the goal is to win. But this time I'm going to win and I'm going to put a layer on top and I'm going to do, you know, a little bit of PR the whole way through the tournament. That's pretty much it, you know, and, and Camille had a great weekend as well. So it was um, it was just, uh, you know, a great weekend for my family. My parents were there again. You know, I, I look back at 81. It was awesome. I have a picture still and you know, my dad passed away at a very young age, but I still have a picture of my dad and I on the dock in 81 and then 85. But, you know, all the sponsors. So like I was sponsored by D3 at the time, Kidder Skis and Denny Kidder is like, you know, the loudest, happiest. Uh, most patriotic uh, cheerleader you will ever have. So we had a team of Americans that traveled with us. And so we had our own little posse, if you will. But I, you know, in retrospect, I looked at it as a positive because it certainly toughened me up. There's no doubt about it. And it made me dig even deeper in the commitment of being selfish to you got to do whatever you got to do, you know, what it takes to, to get to the goal. Well, that toughness led all the way up to what could exist in a time capsule, which was the 1987 Worlds. Uh, looking back throughout the years, the 87 Worlds, the pictures that came from that tournament, the crowds that were on display at that tournament was really unprecedented. Um, just wherever you want to start about the 87 Worlds. Well, you know, I would say I had been skiing really well leading up to it. And then I had a, uh, a very subpar nationals and then we left right away and and headed headed over and we were training at a really good ski club site called gossville lakes and uh, the members were you know in in england there's a lot of ponds and lakes that where people will um, set up ski clubs and uh they treated us i mean awesome we had a amazing week of training and <clears throat> i had a real i would say strong calmness and that I knew it was probably going to be the toughest. I'd been skiing with Mick Neville. I knew, you know, he was skiing very, very well. Uh, there was just a list of people, you know, and I guess I just had a, I had a pretty good slalom, you know, qualifying tricks. I almost went down on a backflip and somehow, <clears throat> I don't even know how, but recovered and I got through to the finals and jumping Leading up to that, I, I was jumping. There's only a few times in my entire career where I was right on the, the edge. And anybody who's a good jumper will know, like you're, you're at the end of your capabilities and now you're in the uncharted where you can really get hurt. And so that week, um, I think maybe I took two jump sets total. And I took, I know one jump set, I took one jump and came in. And I think maybe I took two jumps, maybe three on the, the other set. That was it for the entire week. And it was uh, athletes. And I saw on your list of questions about, you know, your cycling of your training and how that works. And I would had cycled right there to my peak. So I was trying, I only had like hitting too many golf balls on the driving range. Right. And then you go, you only got so many <laughs> bullets in the gun. And so again, two jumps in the preliminary and uh, led after that. And so um, I was last off the dock you know, in the finals. And uh, it was the perfect setting. I don't know, 20,000 plus um, on the lining the shore. Um, super, super, you know, they appreciate very educated skiing crowd. I mean, they were for the home team, you know, anybody from, from Britain, rightfully so. And then, but super educated and appreciated really good performances. So it kind of set the stage. It was a long week. 
and you're battling someone who's a very close friend of yours, like Nick McNeville or Carl Roberts and I were battling our whole career, you know, so, and I lived and trained with Mike Hazelwood for several years and, you know, and Mike's the hero and he's the one who's supposed to win. So it was just a, a tiring, tiring week that led up to the, the finals and the jump event. Well, that jump event, there's a very famous photo. The shot is taken right as your turn for the ramp. You can't even see the ramp. You see this huge crowd. I don't, I can't even fathom what's going on in your head in that point. I, I, I don't even know if you could remember, but can you remember anything about that picture or was it a blur? Yeah, I remember it every day. There it isn't hardly a day that goes by that, you know, if you say what's the best, what's the worst, but I don't recollect uh, that. And wow. it still gives me goosebumps. And um, uh, a good friend of mine who's a photographer actually got that um, photograph and blew it up, you know, extra big for my office. So it was right in front of my desk so I could see it on many occasions. But, you know, there's a lot of backstory to that, right? It's um, the, the interaction with Patrice in France leading up to, to that. And then, um, you know, Mike was a, a, a good friend. You know, we were brutally tough competitors. He's the guy, you know, he was super, super strong, hard worker, grinder. Um, and there was a period of several years where he beat me so many times on his last jump, uh, you know, that I really had to refocus how I was skiing to try to get good enough because he showed no, no sign of letting up. So we're in the finals. The dock is like 150 feet long. And Mike's dad is very loud and boisterous and he ended up he was trying to play head games with me and he was stepping all over you've ever seen any jumper you know you have your helmet everything is gloves everything is placed just so I think we're all superstitious that way I believe so or at least that's the way I was <laughs> and you know he came down and ran all over my skis and kicked stuff around while he was supposedly cheering for Mike and it was ugly and uh so my sister tried to intervene and then we needed the coaches to intervene and that didn't really work out so well. So Bob LaPointe, he intervened and Bob had this move where he could grab anyone by the back of your neck and basically put you unconscious <laughs> with this. I had it happen to me several times. So it's <laughs> not fun. Uh, and so he jumped over the fence and ran up behind Morris and put the, squeeze of death on him and Morris was a big guy and that got him you know kind of stumbling down the dock and he threw him off the dock I mean it was it was wow and of course in Thor Park you know you you're basically like 150 feet 200 feet across so the crowd on the whole other side could see the whole thing and that just sent me into a rage because he shoved my sister it was just being a bully that's wow yeah. and so when I hit the water I was like done I was already toast I was so pissed and it just gave me so much adrenaline and um, I knew I was already you know jumping really well I knew I was going to be on the edge and um, I came extremely late off the 600 the, the boats were a little underpowered um, so instead of like being turning like 610 or 620 I was like on the first one like maybe 575 so I was inside the 600 and, you know, just carried a lot of speed into the turn. And I thought the first jump might have been enough. You know, I needed to go uh, one, one, you know, in meters to feet, but basically 195 to win jumping and 200 to win overall. And so 
the first one I went 195, almost 196. And when it wasn't enough, it, it almost took all the air out of me, you know, because I thought I'm like, how can I get any more? Um, that's basically all I got. And so I was thinking about that on the way down and um, I, I still relive it. Sorry if it's too much detail, but. Oh, this is great. Yeah. So when I came the next time I came down to like 550, uh, way past. And I so, just. So if you're in a 550, just for our, our listeners, 35 miles an hour, you're coming up on the boat. Are you, you're, you're gotta be way past the driver, I would assume. And yeah, are you, and, are you, know, you essing out? Are you, yes. what? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was the, you know, one of the first one. I mean, Jack helped me develop turning from a very wide position on the boat when I was trying to break the boys national records. And so I was the first one who really got way, way in front of the boat and then would kind of bleed off speed, not like they do today where they bleed off a lot of speed, but you had to carry speed into the turn and out of the turn. And so my theory was to do the same thing again, it's not going to work. I got to go later, later to the jump and later down course. So by going 550, 560, basically helped me carry more speed into the turn. And um, I hit the turn perfect. And in that photo, you can see my left cheek is almost on the water. And when I got through, I hit, I don't know, you know, close to the corner, but my arc was completely straight up the middle of the ramp. It was not right to left. It had already swung the arc and I went straight. So as soon as I lifted, there was, you know, back then with a six foot ramp, the way it was, the only feel I can give you, you know, the jarring of a six foot ramp is brutal when you're doing it wrong. When you're doing it wrong, it's terrible. But when you do it right, it's like having a compound bow and you pull everything back and then it kind of releases and locks, you know, and then you let it go and it just explodes. And so right off the top of the ramp, I, I knew that was going to be good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. I had no yeah. idea about that story. Quick, quick, just to pull on that thread a little bit further with all that commotion going on in the dock, what are the, what is the chief judge and the officials doing? Because this, I'm sure that's uncharted territory <laughs> from them to get that situation under control. Oh yeah. I mean, the team coach didn't know what to do and I was yelling at the team coach and, you know, it was, it was just really, there was a lot of movements going on and, and then Bob and Camille just said, look, you gotta just, you got to go. I mean, just get it done. This is bullshit. Sorry. It's just, <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, and so there was so much adrenaline. Um, you know, I've, I've watched that video, but I'm looking over trying to get the distance. Cause I, I knew at that point I did not have any more. That was my personal best behind the inboard, um, at the time. And so, uh, yeah, there was no chances of taking a third jump. There was, you know, I had nothing left other than a lot of tears. And my dad had just passed away. So it was super emotional. And my mom was there with us and she's hugging me and she's like, don't cry. You know, do you, no one can see you cry. I'm like, I can't help it, mom. It yeah. Is there, there are some photos you can see. It's just raw emotion coming back to the dock now individually, a, a unbelievable win, but considering the environment in which you left the dock, I'm sure the U S team was just lit up. I mean, I can't imagine the celebration there. Oh, it was, it was, I can't, I can't, you know, it was probably the, you know, that afternoon and the next day traveling, you know, it was magical. And to this day, you know, I'm friends with, with Mick Neville. I mean, I, all the Australians, I, you know, I was down there for what, seven, eight years. And a lot of them lived and trained with me. And um, 
I have people all the time. I even I saw Jay Bennett at the Worlds. He's like, man, that jump on the final, you know, at the finals in London, it's the greatest one time event I've ever seen in the sport of water skiing. So I hear that a lot. And it just makes me incredibly uh, proud and, and grateful uh, and blessed that I was able to, to do that that day. But I, again, 81, 83, 85, to me, all prepared me for that moment in my mind. So at that moment in time, it, does the wheels start turning like four consecutive world overall titles? Is that enough? And now it's time to maybe back off a little bit and focus on two events. You know, well, so 87, you know, my, our son was born in 85. I, at that time, I, I, I was like, why should I go do this again? Because I could never improve on what I had. And so when the, the next worlds were in 89 uh, in the U.S., you know, there was a, a lot of pressure from my sponsors. Like, you need to do this. You know, you need to, to be there. And, and the other part of it at the time, I didn't believe, I believe that, and my sister did as well, that to really promote the sport of water skiing, we need to like then go to a pro tour. Like, you know, and, and we had the pro events moving that way. The tour had been started in 85. And so it was like, you know, this is a, it's an amateur event, Alabama, very, very important and a very important part of my career. But what can I gain other than, I don't think I can do any better yeah. than I had done. And so we didn't ski in the 89 worlds and, you know, there was a lot of, lot of pushback, you know, and right decision, wrong decision. I don't know. I thought it was the right one for, for me, for the sport and for other athletes at the time. And I had a lifetime of memories already kind of put in the bank. So that was the decision and, and we went with it. Well, and that's an interesting comment there because the sport does transition into the later part of the 80s with the coverage of ESPN's Hot Summer Nights. And that was a very, very big deal. I've actually listened to some podcasts um, with some international skiers that were skiing around that time. And, you know, you can talk about the Masters, you could talk about the World Championships, but a lot of folks that came into the pinnacle of their career around that time talk about the Pro Tour and how important it was. I mean, that was the goal. I don't know, it sounds like that may have started to become your goal and, and you were able to link up what eight pro tour championships at the end of the, at the end of the day. Talk to us a little bit about that, because that was a different time that we don't experience today where we could flip on the TV. We could see you guys jump in week in and week out. And it also, uh, I would say from a training perspective is completely different where you're gearing up for a tournament that may be in one week and then you wait three weeks or you wait a month for a big tournament. I mean, that's a quick turnaround and you got to stay healthy the entire time. Yeah. You know, it, it, today's athletes in the sport of water skiing, I think have it a lot harder than we did in a lot of ways because you have this space between events of your training and cycling to peak uh, becomes uh, even more critical, I think, versus, you know, yeah, a lot of traveling, you're trying to stay healthy. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're getting home late, you're leaving the next week. You're just, you keep going. And there's just was never a lot of time to fix the problems. I mean, you know, no one's going to ski perfect. You're always going to have weaknesses. You got to fix them. So a lot of times there just wasn't time to fix stuff, which made it difficult. But, you know, I was fortunate Mastercraft and Rob Shirley, he was my first sponsor when I was 12. And Rob, as you've probably heard from your grandpa and your mom, he was, 
exceptional guy and a visionary and you know water skiing would have never gotten to where it did without him and so i can remember getting a phone call and he's like hey i have coors light we're going to start this pro tour top secret is going to come out here we're doing a press release next week and um, i want you to barnstorm with me i mean we're going to we're going to fly across the country where these things are we're going to do media you know or we're going to um, i need you you want to do it and i'm like well, how do you tell Rob? No, that's the first thing. So I, I can remember at Mastercraft had an airplane, a twin engine. When we first started, like, I don't think they had enough money to uh, use all the Freon that was needed. So and the plane didn't really have uh, AC. So we were flying all around, you know, um, it was, it was a time of, of your life and other athletes, uh, you know, and really when it started, it was a lot of team skiers, Bob LaPointe, you know, uh, Chris LaPointe, you know, there was a variety, Camille, you know, that <clears throat> we really laid the foundation uh, because it was a Mastercraft cold event, right? And Coors Light was the, was the main sponsor. So I saw how much he had vested in it and how hard he worked. And then the events, if you've ever seen, he was doing the commentating, but it was like, hey, this could be the future of our sport. During that period, that hot summer nights, you would be in the airport or wherever, and people would stop you all the time and just say, hey, I saw you. Are you guys coming? I saw you last week. Where are you coming? Where are you going? Or where are you coming coming from? Especially in and out of Atlanta, right? It was a giddy, uh, fun time and a lot of sweat equity that a lot of people and money put in to make that kind of kick off and get going. That's an interesting story because you know, if, Rob being your first sponsor at twelve years old, he really knew who, what he what he had. And then to call upon you and, and Sammy, there's been something about your personalities that that is just contagious, right? You had this charisma and you still have this charisma where, you know, if Sammy Duvall is doing it, everybody wants to do it. We had Scott the Rocket Man Ellis and Scott just uh, decided <coughs> to uh, retire this year at the age of 50. And I asked him a question and, and it led to, well, yeah, everybody wanted to be like Sammy. So <laughs> that's awesome that Rob uh, very gave kind. you the call. Very kind. Yeah. It, you know, it was, uh, it was super, you know, when I won my first Marine world, uh, the jump tournament used to be in Redwood city, right by the airport, San Francisco airport, right there on the Bay. And it, you know, a lot of skiers later on went to Marine world in Vallejo once the, you know, the site had moved, but that was the first whip style jumping. Right. And I still have a picture of, I got, I won and I got interviewed by Bruce Jenner and Mike Adamley, and it was on NBC sports. And I thought, this, you know, skiing needs to be on M NBC Sports like every week. So I had been exposed to it, and I really felt that, you know, that could be the future. And without Rob, I mean, he got an amazing uh, sports marketing guy from Coors Light named Flynn. I can't remember his last name at this point. And then there was the main guy at, at uh, Yamaha Ham Hamburger. That's how we started using outboard boats at the time as well. So he put a lot of things in place, you know, and then once it got going, he was trying to run a boat company and all the other things. And then the tour began to be sold by kind of multiple parties through the years. Yeah, no doubt. And it, it changed names of who the lead sponsor was for multiple years. One of the things that I'd like to talk to you about, because you overcame so much in your quest to be a world champion four consecutive times, is your jumping style. Your jumping style uh, off the top of the ramp you know, is and I think it was the 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 Wayne Grimdage of going back to saying the Sammy Spring we all know and love. Mm -hmm. We saw Sammy Duvall so much higher and go so much further. 
but yet your skis in the air were split and crossed in the back at times. And I think about that and you're doing something totally different, which it didn't look like uh, when I go back and look at it, that anybody's really trying to emulate your style. Now you've got the S turn going into the ramp. You've got a couple of things. You've got the, the, the split skis coming off the top of the ramp. And then you also started pulling on the handle as you were coming down into land, maybe to eke out a couple of other feet. Talk to us a little bit about your jumping style, because I think it still and has been very unique from any other skier. Yeah. So, you know, I don't really know how I started when I was springy that my skis would spread and the right one would kind of push out. I think part of that was I was always in a good way, um, had dominant power on my front ski, on my right ski from the turn to the ramp, even when I was younger. And I developed this edging all the way into the base of the ramp and onto the ramp where not a lot of people were doing that. And, and to make it even, I guess, wackier at the time, I was right hand high. So instead of holding your left hand up top, which obviously rotating and being able to turn your, your left shoulder away from the boat and the ramp, I had my right hand on top. And so, you know, my parents sacrificed a, a, an amazing amount. And um, when I was in that 9, 10, 11 timeframe, 8, 9, 10, we would drive, you know, I, we were skiing 10 cents a day. I mean, my mom would drive us in the morning. We would practice all day or till one, we'd go home, we'd rest up and sleep. My dad get off work. We'd go ski till dark. And, and we drove, they drove 120 miles a day to do it. And so it's, and finally, my dad found a private lake close to her house. And during that period, he's like, you guys are getting on the outer edge. I started going to some ski schools in Florida during spring breaks or Christmas or whatever. He said, we're going to get the top guys to come in and ski with you here. So the, the Crossco sisters yep. at the time, right? And I won yep. a world championship with Anna Maria, which is, yep. I look back on that. And so the cross to all three daughters and the mom flew to Greenville, South Carolina, from Venezuela, like how? And and lived with us for a month and trained. And Linda Giddens would come up and ski with us and, and train with us. Mike Siderhout, Bob LaPointe, Ricky McCormick at your own site. And so it really exposed us to different things. And my dad's like, look, leave them alone. I mean, the skis are going to do what they're going to do. Um, let's just not focus on that right now uh, because I really couldn't fix it. I mean, it just, it was what it was, but I did get, you know, especially Linda worked with me to flip my hand over to, you know, left hand high. And that really altered kind of my style. And, uh, you know, at that time, I don't know, 120 feet, you know what I mean? It was not a lot, but it kind of locked in for the future. And so from there on out, you know, uh, Jack was really efficient in helping me develop the style to break the boys records and stuff because that last year we were skiing at behind a hundred iron. So the IO at the nationals, which is crazy, right? So the, all those things kind of led to the style. And then when I broke, you know, was breaking the record by centimeters, you know, feet, whatever. And then I developed that down the end where I would, um, had my left hand behind my back, the handle inside yep, the body yep. frame and a little more forward press. And then that's when, when I was, when I broke the record at 208, it was kind of close to that. But then when I went what, 211, 213, 220, and I would say when I look back at my entire career, one of the things I'm most proud about is the techniques that we develop 
you know, through a lot of hard work and trial and error that a lot of people use for a long time and kind of altered the shape of the sport. It's kind of like the LaPointe brothers with Psalm skis, you know, or, sure. or Andy and, you know, his design of Psalm skis. All those things are kind of the stepping stones for what people have today. And again, you look at all the changes in today's skiing world is, is pretty mind boggling in itself. Well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about those world records. Uh, you know, you can compare it to something like slalom, for example, that, you know, the world record might be broken by a quarter of a buoy, a half a buoy, a, a full buoy. But it seems like in the sport of jumping, you know, I think you were at 205, 206, it was a foot, and then, you know, you're in the teens. But there's something about 220 that is a completely different thing. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to announce these pro tournaments from time to time. and. 220 is just a totally different thing from a spectator point of view of how far that actually is. Walk us through what your skis were, how many inches, and what it's like to go 220 feet on that type of equipment compared to today. Leading up to, like, I was never, I, I can't, I did not fault other skiers for doing this, but I was never a guy that wanted to go to all these small tournaments and break world records. Like a lot of slalom tournaments were set up specifically for, for people's personal best in amazing water. I'd love to ski in amazing water, but I just wasn't one through my career. I just didn't believe in that. I was really working on new techniques and I started jumping extremely well with Jack. I mean, some days I drove up to Jack's from the time I lived in Windermere. So it was about 35, maybe 40 minutes. I would drive up. I might take one jump, get back in the car and go home. Or I, I drove up and I didn't jump at all. You know, it was kind of like the 87 worlds. And I had been working on that technique and um, I had one pretty hard fall there uh, out the front and kind of set me back a little bit. And then <clears throat> I didn't really know where I was training for. Mastercraft's like, hey, you know, will you go to Corey's site? You know, and it wasn't a pro event. And I'm like, oh yeah, so that's up in Destin. And social media wasn't like it was. And, you know, we were talking the fall, so Jax wasn't busy. So really, the only ones who really knew kind of what I was doing was my family and Jack. And then you know, whoever was around might have picked up on it. But I was flying at Jax. I mean, really flying. We put buoys out and, and um, you know, I was hitting 230, um, wow. 230 plus. And I was on... 73 and a half, wow. 73 and three quarters skis. And you might remember, actually, I, I went through a period where all the neon skis from Denny, he had, um, you know, black rubber edges. And then I started spray painting my edge bright orange. And in the air, I would try to use that to bring my, the two, you know, the two orange lines back together. Mm. And then he started making neon yellow urethane edges and stuff for me that he carried forward. So when everyone heard the news, they didn't believe it. And, uh, oh, the jump must be, you know, had a dish in it. And actually it had a warp in it. So it was a disadvantage, not an advantage. And, and that's still back in the time of meter reading, isn't it? Or was there cameras set up to, to record that? Well, there were cameras that recorded it, but um, not like the boat. Not like regulation. measurement? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's even, I mean, you'd have to get a wide triangle back in those days if it wasn't 220. So it's definitely 220. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the times were all good. It was just, and I just was like, uh, you know what, if you believe it, you believe it. If you don't, you don't, you know, and the, the, the guys I were training with and stuff and even Bruce Neville, I mean, I coached him for years and years and he trained with me and 
in the end of my career, he became my, you know, most fierce competitor. So I kind of created my own monster, but he's like, how did you, you know, do that? But he wasn't around, he didn't see it. And, um, and so I knew going in that the chances were I was really shooting. I thought I could, you know, Hey, if I can jacks at two thirty, why can't I go two thirty at Corey's, but you know, uh, what was two thirty eleven thirteen and two twenty? It was pretty exciting for sure. And it was all uh, based on the change in techniques that that I implemented at that time. Interesting. So, Sammy, you win uh, your worlds when you're 19, and then you jump to 20. A big mm-hmm. question that I had put out there: What would you like to ask Sammy Duvall? A lot of it came uh, down as what 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 was his prime? When was his prime? Because it's such a long span of years. You were jumping really good then, but I don't know if you consider that your prime. Well, you know, I think, I can't remember the year, the um, Coors Light sponsored the U.S. Open and Nationals in Sacramento. And there's an airport right there next to Bell Aqua Lakes. And that's when I won, I believe, I don't know if I set a record, but I really jumped well and I won overall and did well in tricks. And Austin was, uh, you know, he was still a baby. And I, um, so that would have been maybe 86, maybe 87. And I was just like, you know, I can't keep taking from my family. I need to give back. I need to, having a child was, you know, changed, you know, changed everything in a great way. And so I felt like, okay, I just need to, I need to, why should I take all this time to train for two tournaments a year? And so that's when it, um, you know, at first it felt kind of empty because I'd always been good in tricks and it's something I liked. Uh, I didn't like all the extra winter work, but I did like it. Uh, and, you know, I used to flip when the first guy in the runs at the masters. And so, you know, I did a lot of uh, positive things um, for me, but once I gave that up, it really gave me uh, extra time to do more proficient weight training, you know, off season training and focus on just two events versus three. Awesome. One thing coming out of the 80s into the 90s and you dropping tricks really from the overall, uh, and I don't think a lot of people remember this, but you were competing at a very high level slalom skiing on some of these pro tour stops. And then, you know, there was the development and the progression of Duval skis. Um, I remember you were out there promoting those. I even skied on one back in the day. And tell us a little bit about your slalom career, because that had always been the one and the overall that you were trying to keep up there with the group. Now you had more time to focus on it and you were doing pretty good at these pro tour stops. Yeah. Well, you know, the pro tour really forced me to do it. Right. Cause there was never a trick skiing. They had freestyle jumping. And at one point I had these dreams that I could be a freestyle jumper. Wow. And, and I was very good friends with Scotty Clack and uh, okay. I still, you know, are close, but uh, for those listening who don't know who Scotty Clack is uh he's the one of the top two all-time freestyle jumpers I mean he was winning 12 12 10 of 12 before Dave Reinhardt came along I mean they had battle gore but I could never I tried to learn to do flips because I'm just like well psalm skiing is kind of my hardest event so I'll just try freestyling and see how I can do this but I could never really after trying to stay upright so many years try to flip you know it didn't work good. It so did like, you ever take a three-quarter cut on one jump ski? No, not purposely, <laughs> yeah. not on purpose. And, uh, and so it took me about three weeks to realize this was a lost cause. And it, and it was kind of like, okay, you know what? I just need to really focus on slalom skiing. And so 
you know, before that, obviously you wanted to do well, but I, what I really tried to do was to be consistent in slalom so that it put me in a position to win overall. I'm amazed at the athletes today, the guys that are, you know, overall is obviously recycled again and what the, the top, especially the top guys, how good they are in all three events is, is pretty amazing because that's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. Okay. I was going to ask you about that too, when it comes to slalom. And I, I completely agree with the, the world overall of where it is and the level it is. It's today. One of the things is, is um, putting yourself as a water skier in a position to financially continue to go to the next season. And the best way to do that is to be really good at slalom. I'm, I'm assuming in the nineties, there was quite a bit of incentive just from a financial standpoint to earn some of that money each and every stop. That's an excellent question. I mean, I can tell you were in skiing for a while, right? I mean, look at um, the expenses to get there were the same, right? So, uh, you know, I went at it like, okay, I'm going to go wind jumping and then I need to place in the top four or five and slalom. And that's just, that's just bonus money. It's not expected. You know, and I skied a lot with Andy Mapple. I skied a lot with Carl. I skied a, a lot of slalom with um, Bob LaPointe. Even Jeff Rogers came to my ski school. I learned from him the first time I ever saw Jeff Rogers. So, you know, if I could tell anything to skiers in any individual sport, surround yourself with people that are better than you. And that's really especially if you're a visual person seeing guys that make it look easy or, you know, I look at the slalom skiers today. There's so many amazing athletes that all have, you know, super strong, great wingspans. Uh, You know, you just go, wow. You know, it takes me back. You know, there was a period in jumping where on any given week, there were 10 guys in jumping that could win. I mean, it was that competitive. And so I look at slalom skiing now with the, the crew that's in the top 10, it's just, it's pretty impressive of, uh, you know, that they can come out after three or four rounds of that and, and, uh, and, and win. Thanks for listening and come back to catch future episodes as we chat with water ski legends and current stars of each of the sports disciplines as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of water skiing. Thanks again to our sponsor, Visit Central Florida. We'll see you next time.